0: Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera.
1: And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is.
0: We conclude our season two series, The Wild West of Computing, with a look at computer science at Carnegie Mellon in the 1980s.
1: Looking back at this season of Cut Pathways, we covered early computers at CMU and the establishment of the Computer Science Department in 1965. We heard about a financial and personnel crisis in the early 1970s and a subsequent rebuilding phase that lasted throughout that decade.
0: Pamela McCordick provided a first-hand account of her experiences in documenting the developments of artificial intelligence. And Clint Kelly provided insight into how projects worked at DARPA in the 1980s.
1: In the 1980s, the prestige of CMU's computer science program continued to increase.
2: So the 1980s are a period of transition at Carnegie Mellon University, much as they are in the broader United States.
1: That is historian Andrew Mead McGee visiting professor at CMU, who joins us again for this episode.
2: This is the go-go period of Ronald Reagan, Wall Street, America grappling with the recent past of social upheaval of the 1960s and 1970s with the Vietnam War, with a re-escalating Cold War. It's also an age in which new digital technologies are increasingly prevalent in American society and increasingly embedded into the organizational and academic identity of CMU as a university, as a campus, as a research hub. The 1980s are an era in which CMU finds its patronage relationship with the federal government changing such that it is compelled to seek out closer ties with the private sector, particularly large firms like IBM, International Business Machines, like DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, like Xerox and its park facility on the West Coast. CMU becomes more embedded in the broader computer manufacturing ecosystem as it's forced to reach out to secure additional sources of funding once certain previously guaranteed federal grants begin to dry up or become insufficient for the university's grand ambitions. CMU during this period is shaped by a push from its administrative leadership, particularly university president Richard Sayert, that the university must embrace the computer as a tool for leveraging its future. Sired is a gambler, and he goes all in on the computer, pushing in the chips of the university's future. It pays broad dividends and is what ultimately leads to CMU during this period becoming known as Computer U taking the institution, again, from a regionally unremarkable tech institute to a nationally recognized center for computer science and studies in artificial intelligence, robotics, computer art, and everything digital.
3: Uh, It was a Top computer science department filled with, in my view at the time, the best people that did computer systems work, work integrative in nature, combining hardware architecture, operating systems and software. And that's why I came. Um, it was a collaborative department. It was a department where folks made a very significant attempt and, in fact, achieved a lot of harmony, a lot of integrative research, a lot of collaborative spirit, and actual work.
1: That is Alfred Spector. He came to CMU in 1981 as an associate professor, received tenure, and later became the director of the Andrew Project in the late eighties. The Andrew Project is the first distributed computer environment.
0: 1981 puts us halfway through Dick Seyert's tenure as Carnegie Mellon's president. Sayert made a conscious effort to focus on computer science as a way to bolster the university.
3: Well, let's see, the way I interpreted Sayert's plan was Sayert was a pragmatist and recognized that computing was a comparative strength of the university. And given that you couldn't be like Harvard and have the funding to do everything well, you had to choose a few things where you had, quote, comparative advantage was the term that we all used. Then. I suspect it's still used on campus now, uh, but I don't know. So I think computing was such a powerhouse at that era on this campus that he wanted to do everything he could do there. And plus there was a the nice benefit that it was a pretty self-funding field. There was a lot of DARPA money. The Andrew Project came with tens of millions of dollars from IBM uh, and some money from the National Science Foundation as well. So this didn't require capital investment out of the endowment of the university. In fact, it probably was accretive. Uh, to that through uh, uh, the creation of capital plan, like a building that was built as part of that project. So I think Dick knew that and pushed this kind of thing for that reason.
0: The financial situation of the early and mid-1970s was stabilizing. From 1977 to 1979, there's a record of $8 million in support. $6 million came from DARPA's Information Processing Techniques Office.
1: Stable funding led to an increasing number of students, faculty, new departments and institutes, and ultimately an impressive amount of innovation.
2: You have to understand that uh, in those days, everything was starting. There was no wireless. There was all exciting things. You turn left, there was exciting things. You turn right, there were exciting things. I mean, it was not dull, the place. It was extremely alive.
0: That is Manuela Veloso, who you may know from her work in artificial intelligence, famously using soccer robots in her research.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe how much excitement, high tech and deep thought, and it was everything. Chess, uh, uh, wearable computers, operating systems, word processors, Wi-Fi, architectures. It was everywhere there was like excitement. And everywhere there was almost something new every day. So you were always like surrounded by discoveries, by novelty.
1: It's impossible to adequately summarize everything that happened in CMU computer science in the 1980s in this episode. So we will focus on a few areas. Robots software, and the Andrew system.
0: The Robotics Institute was founded in 1979 with seed funding from Westinghouse. This novel idea for a research center for thinking robots was dreamed up by Richard Ann Hel Jordan, Alan Newell, Dan Berg, and the first head of the Robotics Institute, Raj Reddy. It was the very first robotics department at a U.S. university.
1: Here is Mark Fox with more on the founding of the Robotics Institute.
4: Today there was a presentation where Anahel Jordan mentioned about the starting of the Robotics Institute, and Raj was there and Anahel was there, and I presume uh, Syed was part of that whole thing. Uh, But there was another layer of people. There was... Uh, Myself, who did the white collar robotics, there's a guy named Paul Wright uh, who came out of the mechanical engineering department, a faculty member there. There's another guy, Steve Miller, who came out of the engineering and public policy department, and there's a few others whose names I should recollect, who were really the, the next layer of We're the ones actually getting a lot of this work done. And so it was exciting because you're in a university atmosphere and next thing you know you're on this plane flying down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina to tour a Westinghouse plant. And it was a private plane and, uh, you know, I don't often travel by private plane anywhere. Suddenly finding yourself in a factory that produces high-precision metal products and learning about uh, the whole manufacturing method was really neat. And uh, to be taken seriously by people in industry was really neat. We did that not only with turbine Component production, but printed circuit board assembly in the department in the defense uh, part of Westinghouse. That time was a very exciting time because you were flying all over the place, meeting with people, trying to understand their problems, and then creating research projects out of these problems, and then figuring out how this research will really have an impact on these companies. And, and people were very, very interested in the outcome of what you're doing because they were hoping it would help them solve their their problems. And that was in the, you know just within the first year. And then as the name of the Robotics Institute grew in, around the world, you'd be surprised how many calls you get a day of people who want to meet with you. And so for me a normal day was, sorry I don't have time, sorry I don't have time, or you want to come to to Pittsburgh to visit, I can give you 30 minutes at this particular time. You know, I started to feel like a medical doctor where you, you slot these people in, otherwise you know, if they, everybody who called you said I want to come visit and spend the day, you wouldn't have any days left to do anything. So it's nice to feel wanted, uh, on a, in a global sense. And you know, you get all the standard stuff of being invited to give to keynote speeches all around the world, and getting all your airfares paid, and everything else. You know, that goes with it. And yeah, it was very exciting. It's very exciting to be uh, wanted, to be recognized, to uh, have everybody clamoring after you. And, uh, those were fun times, and, and that's, that's the way the world is here at CMU today. So uh, it's, it's exciting.
1: Mark goes on to discuss the immense benefit that he found in the Robotics Institute working so closely with industry.
4: It turns out that that led to a philosophy that I've had uh, since those days, which is that r- real problems lead to breakthrough research by being thrown into a real situation like that, it forces you to think outside of the box. And what happened was that the research I did in scheduling, which ultimately became my thesis because I had to do some thesis at some point, became a breakthrough thesis in the field because for the first time, somebody says, don't view the problem narrowly. Let's view it in the large. Let's understand all the totality of constraints that exist and try and account for those constraints as opposed to saying, oh, there's all these issues there, but we're not going to consider that. We'll just take a single machine and and deal with a single resource and a single tool or something like that and solve that problem. And I was saying, well, that's great if you're in the university environment, but it does nothing for the actual factory. You've got to really think of the totality of the problem. So from then on, I've always looked for interesting problems, industry or government or whatever it is, where the reality of it forces you to think differently than you would normally think.
1: If you visit the Hunt Library on CMU's campus, you can check out an art exhibit that Catherine and Kathleen Donahoe curated called Looking Back to Move Forward, a recollection of robotics at Carnegie Mellon. There are more than 40 robots and archival artifacts on display, and the exhibition invites viewers to revisit material moments in the history of robotics and to explore a variety of research areas that CMU is known for— field robotics, artificial intelligence, human-robot interaction, and more.
0: The exhibition showcases a number of items being preserved by the Robotics Project, which we started in 2019, 40 years after Robotics Institute was founded. The project is a unique partnership between the University Libraries and the School of Computer Science at CMU. We're using an interdisciplinary approach to build an archive to house CMU's robotics legacy and contribute to a broader understanding of the technology, as well as the development and evolution of the community of people who make robotics research possible.
1: So after the Robotics Institute was founded, more initiatives and centers popped up. Mark Fox was also involved in founding the Intelligence Systems Lab, which later grew into the Center for Integrated Manufacturing Decision Systems, a center within the Robotics Institute.
4: Well, the Intelligent Systems Lab was created at the same time as the Robotics Institute. okay? And it was, it was that laboratory that uh, we did our, quote, white-collar robotics, the, the AI stuff. Um, these problems then led into the creation of the Center for Integrated Manufacturing Decision Systems. So the Intelligent Systems Lab started off with one person, myself, and then grew to somewhere about 15, 20 people. I can't remember. Uh, but in, by 1987, uh, we grew it to about 65 people and changed the name. To Center for Integrated Manufacturing Decision Systems because the scope, variety of the funding, et cetera, had just continued to grow at a at a uh, fast rate.
0: The Software Engineering Institute was founded five years later in 1984. Here's Larry Druffel talking about the origins of SEI. Uh,
5: when did you start at uh, SEI? 1986. When did the uh, SEI first become established? Uh, 1984, Angel Jordan led the proposal team. At the time that uh, that all happened, SCI was proposed by the Department of Defense, actually by a group of us who were in the Department of Defense at that time. It was an RFP that was released, a request for a proposal to, to the university community. Carnegie Mellon had already indicated an interest. I'd talked to Raj Reddy and, and um, Alan Newell and Herb Simon about the idea. And then when the RFP was released, of course, CMU proposed as did, I think nine or 10 other universities. People who led that proposal effort or were involved in it, I know, were Mary Shaw and Nico Haberman. I think Howard Wackler. Mar- Mario Babachi, I think, was also part of the proposal team. Well, we were over in Shadyside. There was an old, nice building, manufacturing building. Uh, Small number of people trying to find an identity. At that time, software engineering was still being debated as what is it and what do you do to bring engineering discipline to to software development. Part of the RFP was to start an education program. So, we, so that was fairly mature. The rest of it was was based on who you could hire. One of the things you sort of need to understand is that. While we were supposed to help the Department of Defense, we recognized that to do that, you do that through industry. The Department of Defense doesn't write its own software except, you know, marginally. I mean, they do a little bit, but most of the software they get comes from industry. So in order to change that world, you have to to work with industry.
0: As we saw with the Robotics Institute, SCI also moved closer to industry. There were practical reasons related to client buy-in and implementation of software, and certainly financial reasons. But this collaboration with industry marked a deliberate shift in CMU's strategy, a strategy to be a national leader.
5: I mean, I have to say that, you know, not just pandering to CMU, but but because CMU is well, the leading computer science program, at least at that time, certainly was, we really said we have to be a national leader. If, we can't, if we're not going to be a national leader, I mean, Dick Siret made it very clear in, in one of the early sessions that I was in with, with the other deans and, and the vice presidents. Uh, we did a strategic planning session about 1985, I think. Excuse me, about 1986, or early 87. And, and I remember his comment was, if you can't be in the top 10, don't bother. And so, so we took that as we, we're going to be the leaders in the world in software engineering.
0: Then in 1988, computer science graduated from a department to a full-fledged school. CMU now had a school of computer science.
1: With all of these new departments and institutes, and with the increasing partnerships with industry, one could argue that this premise of the Wild West was solidifying into a formal organization. But when Jose Mora arrived, He describes the environment as islands of people and not necessarily as a major institution.
6: And so CMU was on a very, very high slope. There were people doing lots of things. And because CMU was still not as well known and established as maybe it is today, there were these islands of people which individually, they made a big difference islands of people extremely good people extremely active people making things that were unique and made a big difference and distinguished so for example just before i came sei was established sei the software engineering institute which now is i don't know a 200 300 400 million endeavor okay The Robotic Institute had been started, Engineering uh, Design Research Center, which was uh, NSF uh, Engineering Research Center, was established. So these are just three, three examples of things besides everything else that computer science was doing the magnetic technology center that Kreider had started in 1983. Circuits, uh, the CAD center which uh, uh, was one of two uh, research centers in circuit design tools that Steve Director on a competitive basis convinced the SRC, the SRC is the industrial consortium of all the big uh, circuit companies like Intel and others that decided to fund two research centers and one was at CMU maybe in 1981 or 82 and the other was at Berkeley so there were all these things that were happening unique and uh, distinguished uh, CMU at the time
0: One of these islands was the Terragator Project. Takeo Kanade and Red Whitaker led a team in the early 1980s that began work on a terrestrial navigator capable of negotiating outdoor, off-road terrain. Terragator was the very first outdoor autonomous vehicle at Carnegie Mellon.
1: Terragator was a six-wheeled machine equipped with the latest technology of the time—video cameras. Sonar ring and a scanning laser rangefinder. It served as a small scale but reliable testbed for the university's earliest research in outdoor autonomy. It was deployed in a variety of settings, from Shanley Park to coal mines. Here is what it sounded like.
0: Terragator was a significant development for its time, moving freely through the outdoors, though at a considerably slower speed than we might expect today. It covered just a few centimeters per second, but it was a forerunner of the self-driving car industry.
1: That is the sound of the first NavLab vehicle.
0: Launched in 1984, the Navigation Laboratory, or NavLab, was another forerunner of autonomous vehicles. And more than 35 years later, it is still ongoing. With leadership and contributions by Takeo Kanade, Red Whitaker, Chuck Thorpe, Marshall Hubert, and many others, the NavLab team has developed 11 different iterations from modest Pontiac sedans to modern public transit buses.
1: What you heard was NavLab 1. Picture an electric blue-adapted Chevy truck. It hit the road in 1986 with funding from DARPA's Strategic Computing Initiative. This semi-autonomous vehicle had a top speed of 20 miles per hour. It was guided by a team of faculty, students, and technicians, and could be spotted traversing Carnegie Mellon's campus and the nearby Shenley Park, avoiding trees and pausing for passing joggers.
0: One more robot. Christopher Atkinson, who is a professor in the Robotics Institute, created a mechanical bounce-juggling robot when he was at MIT in the 1980s. You can read more about this robot, and watch a video of it in action, in the Looking Back to Move Forward exhibition. But it also sounds very cool. Here's a snippet of the Shannon Juggler created by Chris.
1: Voting on these islands of research, the Robotics Institute, SEI, and the other centers would continue to churn out influential projects in partnership with government and industry. But alongside this more serious research, the curiosity in the School of Computer Science would lead to other playful inventions and ideas in the 1980s. In
0: 1982, David Nichols was craving a Coke. But he didn't know if the Coke machine in Ween Hall was empty or if the Coke was cold. So he and a few friends hooked up the vending machine to the ARPANET. This was the first object in what we now call the Internet of Things.
1: Dan Sororik tells the story.
7: It was probably the first uh, device of the Internet of Things back in the mid-70s. Students didn't like to walk all the way down to uh, the Coke machine on the third floor and uh, put some money in and get a, a warm Coke out. And so they would, uh, anytime Cokes were put in, they would start a timer and tell you how long the, that column of Coke had been in the machine so you could guess what the temperature would be.
1: Professor Dan Sororick was the director of the Engineering Design Research Center and co-founder of the Institute for Complex Engineered Systems.
7: So there's a lot of... Uh, things like that. So one of the things that was kind of interesting, we have a lot of high ceilings. So it turns out some of my students got really creative and actually made a loft in their office so they could have places to, to lounge and you know, take a nap or whatever. Well, we had at that time a very strict department head who tried himself on being on top of everything. And so when they were rearranging and renovating uh, he had a, a meeting of all hands and explaining the new building and the new new rooms. And then one of the students uh, raised their hand and wanted to know how tall the ceiling was. And everybody knew about the uh, the treehouse or the, the loft, and they started laughing, but the department head was really puzzled about why that was such a funny question. Uh, but it was a time where creativity was not limited to research. It was uh, involved in other things, too.
1: In that same year, 1982, the smiley emoticon also arrived. Scott Fallman proposed it on September 19, 1982, in a written message board post. He created the smiley face with a series of characters and proposed that it should indicate a joke. He specified that it should be read sideways. And apparently there were a lot of jokes on the message board because he then wrote, Actually, it is probably more economical to mark things that are not jokes, given current trends. For these non-jokes, he offered a frowny face. Another thing that sounds quirky, but is actually a through line throughout CMU's computer science program, is computers playing chess.
2: All right, so the first thing to be aware of is that computer chess and its legacy at CMU is a fraught topic.
1: That is Andrew Mead McGee.
2: There are multiple claimants to be the father of computer chess here. And I will not stake out which one I think is the more deserving, but I will mention a couple of of figures who are important. And I think what's most telling is... There are multiple pockets of researchers at the same time at CMU in the 1980s, focusing on chess adjacent questions. And that is very telling of a certain kind of energy and a certain kind of intellectual focus that defined the university during that period. Interest in computerized chess at CMU goes back to the earliest days of computing at the university with Herbert Simon and Alan Newell, and in 1955, they themselves develop a rudimentary chess engine called NSS. Their interest in pursuing computerized chess is an extension of a broader desire to analyze human logic. After all, what is chess but an exploration of mental connections of logic, of prognosticating the future, of analyzing space, of making decisions based on a combination of open and limited information. We as a society in the Western world use chess as a metaphor for planning and for intellect. There's a reason why in popular culture, supervillains always have a chess board around and we use chess related metaphors to refer to notions of strategy and great insight. Chess is something that is rooted in iterative decision-making and thus can be replicated logically by machine, by the time you get to the mid-1980s, there have been decades of researchers at CMU competing with one another and against labs at other institutions to develop new patterns of computerized chess logic. And what's interesting, in the mid-1980s, two related, but very different chess programs arise at CMU. And there's some contention over what their relationship was, but the stories behind them are quite interesting. And they show that chess at CMU often became a bonding experience between older mentor professors who were often chess players themselves and younger graduate students and postdoctoral researchers who saw the chessboard as this quintessential challenge that they could address with computerized logic. One of the, the two prominent programs is high tech popularized by Hans Berliner, who himself was a correspondence chess champion, thought a great deal about chess, often had a board set up and played with pieces. And he and his graduate student, Carl Abeling, develop high tech and then send it in the late 1980s on the circuit of chess competitions to challenge professional chess players. Uh, and sometime, I want to say 1986, 1988, high-tech is actually awarded master status by the American chess authorities after it defeats four other masters. In theory, by defeating these masters and being awarded master status, the high-tech program is somewhere around the 250th or 300 best chess player in the country. What... Berliner and Abeling do, working with Andrew Pele and others in their lab, is focus on very large-scale integration, uh, VLSI, trying to create a decision-making matrix that can assemble large quantities of information quickly and discern the most logical path that will emerge from that data. It's essentially a split computation problem and that there is one set of decision-making tools looking at possible moves and then another analyzing the state of the board. Human players analyze the pieces, where they have moved, where they might move. Computerized chess programs coming out of this VLSI tradition, look at the open spaces on the board and seek to calculate what might move there. And this is the basis for increasingly more comprehensive chess programs. High Tech is not the only contender that comes out of CMU, and I hope I don't butcher the man's name, but one of the key researchers is Fing Sung Chu who was Taiwanese born, comes to CMU as a graduate student, and while as a graduate student, develops a remarkable program called Chip Test that will then emerge into deep thought, which will then morph into Deep Blue, the machine that beats leading international chess player Garry Kasparov in the late 1990s.
1: By the mid-1980s, the university began to transition away from the Wild West culture of computing. Albin Varia was no longer at CMU. He had been working at online systems since 1974. But he makes an interesting point about operating systems and access to the source code.
6: All right, so around 1984, maybe 87, I think it was 87. See, my career up to this point had been working on operating systems. I worked on operating systems here, the IBM computer here, on the PDP-10s at online systems, on the IBM-compatible computer at o- online systems. And the only reason that I could do that was when IBM or DEC would deliver a computer, they would deliver the source code for the operating system. So that enabled me to make changes to the operating system. Well, around 1987, all the hardware vendors, you know, IBM and DEC, and others, they stopped doing that. They stopped shipping the source code. So they were going to put me out of work.
0: (laughs) Maybe another indicator of the end of the Wild West era was the connectivity that the Andrew Project offered.
3: Well, Andrew was started by Jim Morris, who perhaps you've already uh, interviewed. I had some role in it as a technical advisor and contributor at the time, particularly on the Andrew File System. Uh, but Jim was the leader of it for much of the development phase. We were still doing a lot of development when I got the job, but by then we had begun the rollout and the system was in use. Uh, We had new ideas, of course, as time progressed.
1: This is Alfred Spector, who we heard from at the beginning of this episode. It's worth saying that our description of the Andrew system fast-forwards to the implementation, but Jim Morris's book, Thoughts of a Reformed Computer Scientist, has a great description of some of the work that occurred on the Andrew system from 1983 until its implementation. Jim Morris directed much of the Andrew project and later was dean of the School of Computer Science. Okay. Back to Alfred Spector.
3: So, the Andrew project was catalyzed by the very interesting view of the early 1980s, or for the very early 1980s, that um, it would be extremely interesting to create a system where students, faculty, researchers, everyone on campus could have a computer. That computer could be networked and would facilitate their work and in collaborative information sharing. People had been used to this type of thing in that there had been a collection of larger computers on campus which did allow sharing of information since they were centralized and people accessed them uh, from individual computing terminals. How could we gain the power of a large number of personal computers without giving up the integrative benefits of just a couple of systems that people shared? That was kind of the objective of this. And the thought was, at the time, that it would revolutionize education. I'm not sure we knew how it would revolutionize education, but we thought it would revolutionize education. There was a lot of innovation required to do it. First, the scale was unusually large at that time. Networks of tens of systems sharing were common or in research facilities, but thousands in production use were unheard of. The Ability to do this in a way with sufficient security and sufficient usability to roll out to lots of people on a campus uh, had never been done before. We hadn't figured out how to do that. Uh, there were ideas that had been created around usable interfaces, all of what was done on, um, at the Xerox PARC project. Uh, But that, again, had not really been commercialized yet. So we wanted some of the usability capabilities that had been done at PARC. We wanted to roll them out here. So Jim deserves all the credit for putting together the initial uh, collection of projects that actually credibly solved a large number of problems in this space and got this project into a point where I think it's one of the most influential systems projects of uh, history of computer
1: science. In preparation for the Andrew project, the campus was rewired. Telephone jacks were upgraded so that the second outlet could be used for data communication.
2: CMU, by having IBM pay for the expensive upgrades to the physical infrastructure of its campus, and IBM, by using Carnegie Mellon as a test subject for a software hardware package it intends to license or sell to many other universities based on the acclaim that the Andrew system receives. And the Andrew system is highly publicized, on-campus, In Pittsburgh and nationally. There are reports in news magazines and leading national papers about how CMU is the first truly wired campus where no student can escape a computer.
0: In 1986, the Tartan, which is the school's student newspaper, published an article announcing the inauguration of the Andrew Project. The Andrew Project was designed with personal computers in mind, instead of the time-sharing model popular in the 1970s. But in 1985, personal computers were too expensive. Luckily, by the fall of 1986, you could get an IBM XT for a little more than $3,000.
1: The article in the Tartan goes on to list some impressive stats. In 1981, CMU had 131 computers. Now, five years later in 1986, the university had 4,510 computers. That's a 3400% increase in 5 years. Now think back to 1960, when the school was in the lower single digits for computers owned.
0: By 1986, 35% of the 7,242 enrolled students owned a computer. 41% of the 418 faculty members also owned a computer. And CMU employed 512 computer professionals. In
2: 1986, there were 103 different brands of computers on campus. Most of those were IBM clones, and IBM wanted to create a system where their software packages and their hardware were increasingly favored by college students at CMU, so as to create a model for other universities in the future. CMU and its administrators actually anticipate the boom in personal computers that marked the late 1980s and the early 1990s. And CMU guilds its already strong academic reputation in popular perception by linking itself to this ambitious IBM connected agenda of computerizing its campus. Pittsburgh is an interesting location in the late 1980s and is is, is feeling the decline of the steel sector, the loss of jobs, this city that had been the third largest aggregation of corporate headquarters in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s is struggling in the 1980s. And CMU is at the vanguard of a reinvention of Pittsburgh and its region as a tech hub. They may not manufacture as many computers as say Silicon Valley or the Route 125 corridor outside of Boston, but they know how to use them for purposes of campus life and conducting research. So CMU's national and international profiles are immeasurably enhanced by the Andrew Project and its scope. CMU students will be at the front of an emerging digital revolution because they will be compelled by the structure of the campus, the university's curriculum, and peer pressure to use computers as part of their daily lives.
1: Thank you for joining us on this journey through the wild west of computing at Carnegie Mellon.
0: In future seasons of the Cut Pathways podcast, we'll revisit this time period with new voices and new stories, and we will expand our discussion of computer science to more current times with stories about soccer robots and language translation applications. But for now, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University.
1: This episode was written and edited by Catherine and Dave, and Dave made all the sounds.
0: All the oral histories are available within the university archives, housed in the Carnegie Mellon University Libraries.